Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to try an experiment. It's a new format for some of our solo episodes. I've been having this conundrum about the emails and DMs that post-traumatic parents send me. And I've had several post-traumatic parents who both wanted to be on the podcast to analyze their story more fully, but then were worried about protecting their identity. Because when we're talking about post-traumatic parenting, we really are talking about some of the most sensitive, those topics that really hit at our deepest sense of self and our fears about how we're parenting our children. And those aren't things that we always want to discuss in a public venue. But then we all learn so much from each other on the post-traumatic parenting community. And if you're on the community, I'm so glad you're there. If you aren't, please check us out on Instagram. You can find us at at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. We also have a Facebook group that is for post-traumatic parents only where we discuss specific questions and give each other support. So I really would love to see you there. But I know how much support we get from the community. We also have a private subscribers channel. So we have a lot of places where we can interact with each other and hear each other's stories and give each other insight, like having been through something similar. But then we also want to protect our identities. So, you know, on an Instagram live, I can protect someone's identity because I can read her comment without posting her name. So that works. So what I've decided to do is have people email me their stories, and then we have a back and forth email exchange. And then when we're done, that can become an episode. And this way, I can protect people's identity. Yeah, you're going to lose some nuance. If they would tell their story in their own voice, it probably would sound a little different. But at least then we can protect their identity, do this deep dive into specific parenting profiles, and see if that resonates with us. So if you're a post-traumatic parent who wants to send an email for us to use on the podcast, if you want to share your story in that way, of course, with disguising details, please feel free to DM me on Instagram. You can find me at, at Dr. Kozel with Psychology, or you can email me at targetedparenting at gmail.com. Targeted parenting is all one word. The email address and the Instagram address are going to be in the show notes, so you can find it. And that way you might be find your own story on a future episode. In post-traumatic parenting, we have several parenting profiles. Keep an eye out for our quiz where you can see which type of post-traumatic parent you are. We have perfectionist, paralyzed, entangled, disengaged, and survivor. Sometimes pretty normal to move between the types as the situation demands. A parent might move from paralyzed to perfectionist and then back to paralyzed. I personally moved from entangled to disengaged and then back to entangled until I got to a more integrated place. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into the entangled parent. This is going to be a two-part episode because part one is going to be about entanglement, but we can't understand entanglement till we fully and completely understand boundaries. Boundaries are very misunderstood. 
So we're going to do a second episode having to do with entanglement specifically about boundaries. So I want to first preface by thanking Esme for sending her letter and the back and forth that we had where we discussed her story and figured out which parts of it belong on the podcast. And I have to say, when I read her initial email, I cried so hard. A lot of why I cried is not the surface details of our stories. Esme and I come from completely different cultures. We have completely different family structures. We share very few things in common. But the sense of despair, anger, and terror that came through in her letter when she was talking about entanglement was so familiar to me. So as you listen to her story, I want you to listen two ways. I want you to listen with what we say in psychotherapy as the third ear, right? I want you to listen with your brain, hearing her story, seeing if it makes sense to you. And then I want you to listen with your gut. I want you to listen with your body and see what emotions her story brings up to you and if you can relate and how it feels to hear her story. For our purposes, entangled means that someone or some people, generally our family of origin or an ex-partner, are entangled inside our own sense of self. I look at entanglement as a net. Imagine a bright orange clownfish trapped in a net, trying to break free and swim towards its kids, but it's being held back. That's how I see entanglement. We're stopped. We're pulled back from swimming forward towards our goal, towards our values, towards freedom. Is there a net that keeps you entangled in old relationships, old senses of self, old values, goals that are no longer important to you, things that pull your focus from your kids and your family? and your life that's worth living, your valued life, even though you yearn to swim free, then you're entangled. Sit with that for a moment. What emotions come up for you? For me, it's a mingled sense of anger and despair and maybe some fear mixed in. It's just this sense of being trapped. If it's family of origin entanglement, that is particularly tough to deal with. We can also have entanglement in a trauma bond relationship, entanglement with an ex-partner, and even sometimes entanglement with a religious group, with a boss, with a mentor, with a profession. The idea is that this isn't just a relationship. It's part of our sense of self. That's when it becomes a problem. I very often, as a way of undoing entanglement in one sense of my life, I tell people that Dr. Kozlowitz is what I do. Robin Kozlowitz is who I am, and there's a difference. Esme is a post-traumatic parent who has given permission to use parts of her story for the podcast. Obviously, her name and identifying details have been changed. We emailed back and forth until we were really comfortable with what we're sharing in the email, what we're sharing, what we're reading, and what we aren't, and we're comfortable with the amount of disguise that we've given it. As will become clear soon, we also don't want Esme's family of origin to recognize themselves, not that I am worried that they will, because as we'll hear about her family of origin, they don't sound terribly introspective. So I'm going to read the email she sent with all the identifying details obscured, so we can get a sense of what it feels like to be an entangled parent. 
Here's Esme's story, or at least the parts of it she feels comfortable sharing. I wish I could parent according to my values. What keeps holding me back is all the drama in my family. It almost feels like every time I listen to your lives or I interact on your Instagram, I get this horrible feeling that I'm not doing what I believe in doing, and it makes me feel awful, but it also makes me feel hopeful because I see that there is a way to do it. It's so hard to manage with all the chaos around me. My dad has chronic health issues. He's on disability, and there's always stuff that needs to be handled. Like there's an application that's past due for his medical insurance, and he calls me and he says, I need to do it by close of business today. My mom gets very critical and doesn't seem to get that I have other responsibilities. She's busy with my sister, who's getting a divorce and is in this bitter custody dispute with her ex. It just feels like there's always another crisis and another reason for me to drop everything and run over there. Somehow, my brother is given a free pass. He's in college and he lives at home, but no one can interfere with his studies or whatever. It's like, for all intents and purposes, he's a child and no one would think to ask him to carry any load. Like, I would be looked at like I'm insane if I would suggest that he pick up dad's medication from the pharmacy, which is on the way to his college campus. I always feel so torn and desperate. Like, I wake up with a clear plan of what I need to do today and what's on the agenda, and then I get one of those calls. It almost seems like this happens every single time I get my feet under me. Like, just when I think I can dig out of a hole on my to-do list, there's another crisis, and it's always something major. My sister's kids must be picked up or she'll lose custody. My dad has an emergency doctor appointment, but my mom can't get out of work. Stuff like that. It doesn't help that I own my own business, so technically I can free up time. When you're the boss, there's no boss yelling at you to be back by a certain time. But that's the thing, time. Time is basically my boss because ultimately orders need to be sent out, customers need to be replied to, my staff needs to be supervised, or I end up alone in my business at midnight finishing up stuff that could have been done by my employees had I only been there. My family just doesn't see that. Yes, I work from home. But that doesn't mean that when I'm home, I'm not at work, if that makes sense. So here I'm going to have to pause and chuckle because I have offices in my house, and yes, Esme, that makes a perfect sense. As someone who works from home, I can so resonate with that because many people make this mistake. They think that if you work from home, I had this for years when I was doing research and I was working remotely, so I was working from home, even though technically I was this was before COVID, but I was already doing kind of remote work kind of things. Yeah, I was home, but I wasn't really at home. I was at work. I just, my work happened to be in an office in my basement. I so get that. Esme again. And they get so upset when I try to set a boundary or when I try to ask for some predictability in their requests. It's all about, well, don't you see your sisters in crisis? You're so lucky. Can't you help out more? And it's not like I don't feel lucky. I have a wonderful marriage. I have great kids. I love what I do. I get it. But it's still too much. Or we didn't know this emergency would happen, but they kind of did know when it comes to things like an application that has a six-month deadline. Like, tell me about it six months ago, and then I can slot it in. I know, I know, you're going to tell me to communicate with clarity and explain my boundaries. But when I tried, I got iced out. And then I got all these emotional texts from my mom and my sister about how selfish I am. I can't handle that. I just feel so guilty. So here's... Me saying this to Esme because I think that one of the things post-traumatic parents do is we self-blame a lot and we take on shame and guilt for things that aren't ours. 
So I'm not sure I'm going to tell you that. I'm not sure I would say you need to set better boundaries and communicate with clarity because you sound like a really smart person, Esme. You sound like someone who's done the work. You sound like someone who's read a lot. You understand psychological concepts. So I imagine you've already tried what would work in a healthy family. The problem is your family of origin doesn't want to hear it. They're setting you up for entanglement. Esme again. And when I feel guilty, my parenting really suffers. I'm just not present with my kids. I'm stressed out, on edge. I'll say things I never thought I'd say like, can't you see mommy's having a bad day? Are you so selfish that you don't care? And ouch, I don't want to do that. I'm basically doing to them what was done to me, making them the caretakers of my emotional state. It's been getting worse since my oldest daughter became 11. I have this temptation to lean on her or say these really mean things to her. Like if I asked her to set the table for dinner and I come home and she's playing a game on her phone, I get super mad, much more mad than I should. I'm going to pause Esme's letter. And first of all, the ouch, I feel that ouch too. I've been there and done that. I've definitely been in that place where I've been entangled and then disengaged and then displaced my emotions on my kids. That really hurts, especially when we know better. So I just want to pause for anybody who's listening who feels that and knows what that feels like. This is hard. And knowing it can also be a huge catalyst for growth. So let's have the hopefulness here too. And here's my next question that I asked Esme, which is, I wonder if Esme herself was given a lot of responsibilities at age 11. I wonder if that's when her dad was first injured or if that's when she started picking up on the tension in the home and trying to fix them. 11's an interesting age, right? You're not a teenager yet, but you're old enough to really think critically and pick up on subtext. It's not an accident that a lot of coming-of-age novels, a lot of books about identity are at age 11, right? Think of Harry Potter. It starts when he's 11. There's a lot of books where 11 is the age that you start. You're not quite a child, but you don't yet have the hormones and the pressures of adolescence. So 11 is an interesting age. And we know in post-traumatic parenting that very often there is a developmental level interaction with our trauma where when our child reaches the age we were when we were first traumatized, we have all sorts of emotional reactions. So I'm wondering about 11 for Esme. But here's Esme's original email again. But I can't set boundaries against my family. I just can't. It's too painful. I don't want to cut them off. I just want them to hear my side of things and understand that I can't carry the family anymore. It's too much for me. That, yes, I see that my sister's in crisis, but it's not selfish for me to want to focus on my family and my kids first. And that despite them seeing me as entitled, selfish, and even self-absorbed because I complain when I'm constantly called on last minute, I'm basically the one who's doing all the work. I'm basically carrying the family. Even just to understand the practicalities of running a business from your home, Like, yes, for a real crisis, I can free up time, but the buck stops with me. In the end, my employees work their hours and then go home, but it's my business that will fail if orders don't go out on time, if supplies aren't ordered from overseas enough in advance of my busy season so that my staff can use them to complete orders, if my website isn't updated or we fail a health inspection. Like, sure, I could order supplies Tuesday morning, I could order supplies Tuesday evening, but ultimately they've got to be ordered by Tuesday or they won't be here on time. So sure, if I must, I can take dad to a doctor's appointment, but then I will be up all Tuesday night. 
which means my poor kids will have an irritable mom the next day. Like if there was just a way to get them to hear me. You're a psychologist. Can't you figure out an effective way for me to communicate this? There has to be a way that you can get them to hear me. I'm going to pause Esme's letter here to discuss and analyze. First, check in with yourself. Is your adrenaline pumping as you're hearing about Esme's life? Do you resonate with the kind of stress she's under? I know I do. Do you feel a sense of anger as you hear about how her family of origin treats her? Of course, we're going to hold the reality that the story might look different to them and that her sister might have a different perspective. But just from what we're hearing from Esme, do you get a sense of anger? Do you feel fear? What emotion comes up for you? Do you feel an overwhelming sense of sadness? Notice those reactions because they're going to be super helpful to you as you understand entanglement. Our emotions exist to send us messages about the world. They're an early perception system, sometimes even before our conscious mind is interpreting the world. What does that stress-fear response mean? I'm going to give you some background that Esme told me about when I emailed her with some questions. Let's hold that fear-stress response in mind because fear and stress tell us about danger. So let's hold that in mind and let's hear what Esme said. Esme feels an existential threat at the thought of her business collapsing. Although her husband has a pretty good job, they need the income her business brings in for their survival. In their 10-year expansion plan, they hope their business will grow to the point where her husband can leave his current job, which is somewhat dead-end and unfulfilling, but fairly well-paid, and it has really good medical benefits. And he'll come into the business as a partner using his business management skills to work on that end of things, while Esme continues to use her creativity and her unique skill set on the design service elements of the business. And they've done the work. They've consulted with business coaches. Their plan is viable. It's not just a plan. I don't think they'll become extraordinarily wealthy with this business, but this could be a very successful business. If I lived geographically close to Esme, I would definitely be a patron of her business. It's not just a plan. It's a dream. It's one of like those American dream small businesses that could really work, but not if it fails at this stage. And yes, Esme conferred my suspicions. She was 11 when her dad got injured. Her mom took on more responsibilities at work. We can speculate that this is when she started trying to fix her family. So it's not just survival for Esme. It's also the survival of a dream. It's survival, like financial survival for Esme's family. It's their plan for how they're going to support themselves. And then it's survival for Esme's sense of self, for who she wants to be in this world. So threats to the business are both survival and existential, right? Existential because it's about who she is. This is the kind of life she's envisioned for herself. This is a dream. Now, why anger? Anger identifies a problem. So if you listen to the story and you felt anger, let's think about that. Anger identifies a problem. Anger identifies a boundary. Now, we can talk a lot about the structures of Esme's family of origin. We can talk about narcissism. We can talk about family scapegoating, the concept of a golden child. But I feel like that type of information is out there in the world already. If you've ever felt like the family scapegoat or you're the only one in the family expected to do practical tasks while the family sees you as inherently deficient in some way, fantastic books out there on the subject. DM me. I have a whole list of readings on narcissism and families, on family dynamics, on family of origin entanglement. I feel like that work's been done by other people who are more qualified to talk about that than I am. What I want to talk about is specifically the entanglement and the parenting aspect of this. Esme's family is inside her sense of self. 
She's been socialized to never feel fully okay unless her family tells her that she's okay. Her family have set themselves up as Esme's arbiters of reality. This is where post-traumatic parenting has a slightly different focus than other parenting plans because we see all parenting as reparenting. So because I was a child development researcher before I was a trauma psychologist, because I have both of those lenses, I'm looking at Esme's personality development from her temperament through to adulthood when it became her personality. I'm looking at that in the context of her entanglement. So that's why we say all parenting is reparenting, because there are things Esme has to relearn about her own personality and her own development that she can only do as she tries to parent her kids in a more normative fashion. So in Esme's development, right, her family set themselves up as the arbiters of reality. What Esme is, is the type of post-traumatic parent that had what we call SACSs, secret adverse childhood experiences. We know about adverse childhood experiences. Those are the really tough childhood traumas that we have a hard time getting over. Someone in the family is incarcerated, having cancer as a child, having a parent die, moving multiple times, living in poverty, being abused, being assaulted, right? Those types of major traumas. And then we talk about the secret adverse childhood experiences, those experiences of being raised by a parent with narcissistic tendencies. In her case, her mom was a secret, not so secret alcoholic, her mother's harsh criticism, playing favorites, having one child who's always on the out to us to get back into mom's good graces, her father's bitterness and anger about his injury. Those were like the death of a thousand cuts for Esme. It wasn't this one discrete trauma. Yes, her father's injury sounds like that was a pretty traumatic experience for the family. But it was the thousand and one things that happened as a result of it, like her mom relying on alcohol, her mom taking on more responsibilities at work, the harsh criticism that comes when a parent is a secret alcoholic, right? All of that stuff wasn't just dad got injured when Esme was 11. That wasn't the totality of the trauma. It was the death of a thousand cuts. She was a sensitive peacemaker who was always trying to fix it, to make her mother happy, to placate her father. She was always jumping in to fix the family. Somehow, despite all her efforts, she was never good enough for her family. As I say that, I think because of all her efforts, she was never good enough for her family. But that's speculation. Her family set themselves up as her arbiters of reality. If they agreed something was valid, then it was. If they thought something wasn't valid, it wasn't. Do you notice in her email how Esme was almost asking me for permission to manage her time as she saw fit? She was giving so many justifications and explanations for why her time is precious and valuable. Did you see how many explanations she gave for how constrained she is and why it's important? She didn't need to do that for me. I already believe her. I already believe her time is her own. She's doing that because inside her sense of self, she believes she's self-centered and lazy. She believes that if she would just manage her time better, she would be able to fix everything. She has this illusion that with this perfect time management, if she was just on top of things a little bit more, she would be able to manage it all. She has this sense that anytime she wastes, like on self-care, on taking a break, on maybe sleeping in after a sleepless night because one of the kids was up, right, any of those things, if she's less efficient, she makes a mistake, 
it isn't her own, right? Like she doesn't have the right because her family owns her time. Her family is inside her sense of self. Deep down, she's always searching within herself for signs that she is as self-centered, entitled, or spoiled as her family says she is. They have set themselves up as the arbiters of her reality. Until they agree that she's entitled to protect her time, she feels self-centered and lazy when she does, right? So she's always looking for like evidence and uprooting those traits within herself and looking for evidence that maybe it's true because deep down she believes it is. And of course, this family system wants to keep her drawn in. So every so often, they do graciously agree that she has the right to her own time. And when I say they want to keep her drawn in, I don't mean they consciously are sitting down and having a family meeting about, like, how can we keep Esme completely enthralled to this family? What do we do? It's an unconscious process that's acting itself out, that's playing itself out. Because her business is somewhat seasonal, certain frenzied crunch times are anticipated, and they'll graciously tell her, dad has an appointment today, but since we know it's your busy season, he'll Uber to the doctor's appointment. What does that do? It keeps her grateful for the gracious granting of her time back to her. That keeps them as the arbiters of reality. It keeps them entangled in her sense of self. And this can happen. This specific story, I think, struck me so much because even though Esme and I come from such different cultures, we have such different lives, that sense of not being your own arbiter of reality, that happens with entanglement a lot. It happens with a ex who just won't ever step up to the plate. So if the ex believes that it's okay for the custodial parent to have a break, he'll graciously take the kids. But if the ex doesn't think it's a good enough excuse, then he can't, right? So there's always that sense of like, do you give me permission? And that sense, that's what entanglement feels like. As long as her family of origin is entangled in her sense of self, of course she can't parent according to her values. Of course she's looking for the magic bullet. She's asking me as a psychologist, right, what's the most effective way of communicating this? How can I get them to listen? How can I get them to hear? But here's the thing. You can't communicate something effectively if the other person doesn't want to hear what you have to say. You know, there's a quote with biblical origins. There are none so blind as those who will not see. Or to put it in more folksy terms, Mark Twain put it, tell me where a man gets his corn pone and I'll tell you what his opinions are. Esme's family has no vested interest in hearing her, so they won't. People will never hear something that goes against their self-interest. So as a psychologist, sometimes it's my job to say, there is no way to do this. This marriage can't be saved. This school placement isn't viable. This medication isn't helping you. This treatment option won't work for you, right? Sometimes there is no way. What Esme needs from me isn't a way to communicate this to her family. Esme needs to communicate this to herself. That's where the AIM model comes in. In post-traumatic parenting, we have this model, acceptance, integration, meaning. I am taking this model from therapeutic approaches that I use to treat trauma like acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, internal family systems, third-wave psychoanalysis, Dr. Edith Ager, Viktor Frankl, right? This idea that we have to accept, we have to integrate, and we have to make a mission out of what happened to us. So let's talk about acceptance. Esme has to accept some difficult truths. Right now, in looking for the most effective way 
to tell her family these messages, what she's really doing is she's not accepting. She's sort of counterfactual in her thinking. She's trying to undo a trauma. Counterfactual thinking happens when it's one of the aspects of flashbacks. It's one of the aspects of when we sort of re-experience and rethink a traumatic event. Like, for example, if someone was in a car accident, they might obsess over the morning before the accident. Like, if only I had turned left instead of right. If only when I woke up, I was feeling a little nauseous. If only I had called in sick to work and said, you know, it's not a good day. If only I had paid attention to that instinct that I had. And we very often will do this. We'll rehearse the moments before the terrible incident over and over because our brain cannot tell the difference. Well, the part of our brain that's doing this, our amygdala, cannot tell the difference between past, present, and future. So the part of our brain where PTSD resides is just trying to undo the accident because the accident was terrible, right? It shouldn't have happened. So if I could only have forced myself to go left, go left, go left, do not turn right, you're going to hit a truck if you turn right. The problem is it already happened. I cannot undo what already happened. I'm wasting a lot of energy when I try to undo what already happened. Acceptance is about reclaiming that energy, telling that trauma app in our brain, well, actually, that already happened. There's nothing to do about it. That accident already occurred. And now I can take some wisdom from it and move forward, but I can't undo what happened. Esme has to accept, right? She can't be counterfactual. She has to accept some difficult truth. Her family of origin will never grant her that sense of being good enough. They don't have a vested interest in doing so. They wouldn't even know how to, even if they would want to. Acceptance for Esme is, and try saying this out loud to yourself, to your own internal arbiters of reality. Like imagine saying this to whoever is in the back of your head telling you that horrible thing about yourself. I will never make you happy. You will never see me as good enough. I will never get that validation as an essentially good person from you. You will never hear this. Become aware, check in with yourself how that feels when you say that to your own arbiter of reality in whatever the flavor is for you. It's really hard because our brain really does want us to come up with a way of fixing it, right? To figure out a way to this time, turn the car left instead of right, like, or right instead of left, right? Like, how do I undo what happened? You can't undo what happened. There's no time machine. There's no way to go back. We have to accept that. Let's go back to the sense of anger that many of you were conscious of as I was reading Esme's email. I said that anger identifies a boundary. So now let's understand a little bit because we're going to do this in depth in the next episode. Let's understand what boundaries are. As soon as we understand them, we can understand how to help Esme undo her entanglement. Boundaries are, at their simplest, where you end and I begin. If you think about it, giving birth to a child is the ultimate in establishing a boundary. An egg starts out as part of the mother. It is a body part, right? It is within her body. Well, her, it's within her uterus. It's a self-contained entity inside of her. It then drops. It then becomes fertilized. And then the baby starts to grow, culminating in the baby eventually leaving the mother's body. So giving birth is an experience of establishing a boundary, starting from almost fully entangled, and it's normal at that stage, it's healthy, to this concept of like matrescence. The baby is born, the mother is born. And now 
there's that process of separation, individuation. How close can we be? How distant is comfortable? How close is comfortable? That's the process of parenting. Boundaries are where you end and I begin and where I end and you begin. Boundaries mean there can be multiple perceptions of the same reality because part of you ending and me beginning means we're going to perceive things differently. And that's totally and completely okay. Let's give a relatively trivial and cute example of this. Recently, I took my kids on a little trip. We had a picnic. We went on a ferry boat. We had an adventure in a park. We went bowling. It was a pretty nice day for the kids. It was a pretty miserable day for me. My baby was cranky. There were multiple diaper changes in multiple locations. The bowling alley was loud and bright, and I kind of had that instant headache that you get when you're in an overstimulating environment. My kids were happy and helpful. They were great. They didn't abandon me with all the work. Everyone pitched in to put together food for the picnic before we left. Everyone was helping me, like, set food out for the picnic. The kids were really just adorable. I definitely enjoyed some parts of the trip, the joy on my 18-month-old's face when we used one of those, you know, those assisted slides they have in a bowling alley where, like, you put the ball on a slide and then it sort of rolls down the slide and it, you know, knocks down the pins almost on its own. Totally and completely by accident, we helped him put a ball on the slide and it just went flying down the alley and knocked down a whole bunch of pins and then everybody cheered for him. It was priceless. The look on his face was like, when does everybody cheer for me when I crash things down and make a huge mess? We don't do that often enough, I think. But it was just so adorable. My nine-year-old said, Tommy, this was the best day ever. And for him, it was. For me, it was mostly an exhausting hassle. Is he right? Am I right? We both are. Boundaries mean we can each have our own interpretation of reality. He's allowed to have fun while I have a headache. I'm allowed to have a headache and not fully enjoy the experience. I can hold the fact that it was really fun to watch them have fun and also that it was really overstimulating for me. Totally okay for us to have opposite experiences of the same event. That's not even slightly problematic, right? Let's get back to Esme. What Esme needs to defend so much more than her time, even more than her values, is her right to her own interpretation of her reality, her right to her own sense of right and wrong. Acceptance will be, would be. You will never see my reality. There's no way to get you to see my reality, and that's okay. I can validate my own reality. As long as her family arbitrates reality for her, she'll be wasting energy, giving me a million reasons why she should be entitled to her own time. But she's already entitled to it. Like, I know this already. She doesn't need to prove that to me. Acceptance. She needs to believe that deep down. She needs to accept that her arbiters of reality will never see her side and that that's okay. That's acceptance, not engaging in that counterfactual thinking, not trying to make the outcome come out different this time. Then we have the second step of the A model, integration. If you're angry as you hear Esme's story, if you can relate and resonate, take a moment, tell yourself or me, the things the arbiters of reality in your own life have said about you, do they resonate? Now, here's the thing. The best lies have some truth in them. Everyone is sometimes self-centered, sometimes lazy, sometimes not as great as managing their time as they should be. Or maybe the other way, everyone is sometimes too rigid or sometimes too flexible or sometimes too controlling about things. Everyone is sometimes tuned into the wrong things, makes mistakes, gets too emotional, gets angry, takes things personally. 
Sometimes we're too easygoing, right? Everybody has traits that we can express that can sometimes feel too intense. So let's be unflinching about that. Sometimes those things have their place. For me, as I've spoken about before on this podcast, I dissociate. I can completely get lost in a world of my own. I can concentrate to the point where the world falls away. I had multiple times when I was writing my dissertation where I sat down to write after my kids went to bed at like 8 o'clock at night. And the next thing I know, I hear birds chirping and it's 5 a.m. And like, where did the night go? I'm very capable of doing that. I have been told by my own arbiters of reality that I'm too spacey, that I'm too involved in my own world. It also is what allows me to concentrate for long periods of time, to be intensely creative, to put really ambiguous, confusing concepts into words. For me, right, there was no way to complete a PhD while working and being a mom without that ability to dissociate, right, without that ability to mull something over for long periods of time and to just sit and think. One of my kids was once um, teasing me that a PhD should be called a doctor of thinkology because that's basically what you do. You sit and think all day. So, yeah, it's true. There's just no way to write a book without a certain level of blocking out distractions. And sometimes that means saying no to things we'd like to say yes to. One person's self-discipline is another person's self-centeredness, right? That's integration. I have this trait This trait that I have accepted that my arbiters of reality will tell me is negative or bad or makes me not good enough, and yet this trait is also what makes me me. This is why we get such a sense of despair and anger and fear when arbiters of reality tell us about a trait that we have that we need to undo because we know that that trait is not just a negative. It's integral to our sense of self, right? For Esme, this ability to focus and to work on long periods of time on very creative projects, that ability is her superpower. She cannot undo that ability. If she undoes that ability, her business fails, right? So this trait is also what makes me me. And here's where Esme and I with our very different stories are so the same. Because this trait that some people might see as negative is also my superpower. I cannot let go of it. There's no way to build a creative business like Esme's without blocking out some focus and being singular in that focus, sometimes to the exclusion of other things that would also be nice. I was listening to this craft of writing podcast because every so often as I'm writing a book, I like to listen to, you know, different famous authors talk about their process, even fiction authors, even though we're in very different fields, just because it's so helpful to hear their process. And I've learned some incredible things. So I was listening to this famous best-selling fiction author, don't remember who she was, don't remember which podcast it was. And the host asked her, how are you so prolific? You have kids, you have a life, you have all these book promotion obligations, you have this whole social media platform to keep up with. How do you have time for it all? And her response really struck me because it's something I want to do more of. She said that she schedules writing into her calendar like she would any other appointment. She knows that a chapter generally takes a few writing segments. Here's where I'm going to be conflating because I'm remembering what I heard and I could have heard it differently. She could have said something different. So let's say she'll put in her calendar Tuesday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. chapter 8. I believe she said exactly like you would a dentist appointment. And if a friend of hers is in town and says, hey, I'm in your town Tuesday, let's have lunch. She'll say, sorry, I'm only available in the morning or only till 1. I have to get back for an appointment. So getting together with friends is a value, right? It's a relationship. Maybe it's even life-affirming. 
But she's writing a book now, and exactly as if she'd be a lawyer or a kindergarten teacher or a mechanic, she's not available when she's at work. If she would be a kindergarten teacher, no one would bat an eye if she said, oh, too bad, I would love to see you, but I teach from 9 to 3, so I'm not free for lunch. It would be a bit much to ask a friend to take a day off work, right? And theoretically, when we work from home or when we are the boss, it should be the same way. I've definitely had to say no to some family obligations like traveling for a cousin's wedding or visiting with a friend who came in out of town or certain social events because I'm writing a book and I need to protect my time. used to make me feel incredibly guilty because, like I said, my own arbiters of reality told me that I'm spaced out and self-centered, right? And that guilt and sense of dream that, that those divided priorities gave me was difficult. So sometimes I did have to say no to something. And then I'd sit at my computer and be unable to write because I would be feeling so guilty that I wasn't at the wedding or I wasn't visiting with that person or I didn't stop by or I didn't change my schedule to see that person. And then I would feel really bad until I heard that interview and something just clicked in my brain and I realized I need to do the same thing. Is there an element of self-centeredness there? Sure. But our values and our time can be interchangeable sometimes. We can't always achieve without protecting our time. And it's true. It would be nice to do that one thing and that one thing and that one thing, but I cannot do all the things. Because if I do all the things, then those are the only things I'll be doing. I won't be writing my book. When I was getting my PhD, I have a lot of friends that I know that are ABDs, right? All but dissertation. They could understand saying no to someone like, sorry, I cannot get together with you from 6 to 9 p.m. because I have my abnormal psych class. Sorry, I cannot babysit your kids for you even though you're in crisis because from... 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., I am doing research in a lab. But when it came to writing their dissertation, which is a lot of kind of just sitting there at a computer and writing it, that's when that kind of guilt really set in. Well, I technically could babysit for you. Instead of writing my dissertation on Monday, I could write it on Tuesday. And once that's okay, and there's nothing wrong with occasionally sacrificing our time for the sake of a value we believe in. That's important. I think we sometimes do need to stretch ourselves. But if we keep doing that, especially if our arbiters of reality demand that we do that, that's how you end up being 20 years after grad school with an ABD. That's how my book would end up never getting written. And that's not okay. We can't always achieve without protecting our time. The problem is when an arbiter of reality has spoken, it's really hard to shake that sense of unworthiness, especially if there's an element of truth. And like I said, all the best lies have an element of truth. So think about what your arbiter of reality has said about you, that thing that you really hope isn't true, that thing that scares you in the middle of the night, that thing that you try to disprove with your actions. Examine unflinchingly the evidence. Look at the evidence for it. Like for me, yes, there's an element of self-centeredness around writing a book. There's a certain element. There was certainly an element of that in graduate school. I did have to learn to protect my time. But because my arbiter of reality said that about me, I used to give up my time freely all the time. And then I was left holding the bag, like Esme filling orders into the wee hours of the morning, except I was, you know, coding data till the wee hours of the morning because she gave away her time to her family. When you give away your time, you give away your values. Once we examine the evidence, let's start saying things like, I have the right to protect my time. I have the right to plan ahead. It's okay to be dependent on my schedule. It's okay that I need my sleep. I have the right to keep my schedule open and flexible. I have the right to my emotional reaction to things. I have the right to keep my emotional life private. 
whatever it is, being too rigid, too flaky, self-centered, lazy, emotional, not responsive enough, too responsive, too sensitive, there's probably an element of truth. And it's okay to be our own arbiters of reality. We're allowed our own interpretation. We're allowed to be ourselves. Integrate that. That's the second step. It's part of who we are. Just because someone is raised in a family that keeps schedules open and loose doesn't mean she's rigid or a control freak because schedules make her feel safe. Just because someone was raised in a family that shares all their life stories, their emotional reactions to things, all their information doesn't make him a snob or cold if he doesn't want to share. Start reclaiming your reality from the arbiters of reality. Become your own arbiter of reality. Of course, we also need checks and balances from people around us, maybe a spouse, maybe a therapist, maybe a mentor, right? Maybe a close friend. Like sometimes we do run our reality by someone for a reality check, right? This is how this story seemed to me. And sometimes a friend's like, no, I think you overreacted a little bit there, right? And that's okay. And then we can get really clear about entanglement. Then we can integrate. Yes, this is who I am. In my job, if I am not really strict about getting enough sleep, I might make mistakes the next day, and that's not safe. Maybe I'm a doctor or a nurse, right? So yeah, I am a little rigid. It's true. It's my superpower, my ability to set and keep schedules. Yes, I tend to get anxious. I make a lot of contingency plans. That's okay. That's me using a superpower. This is who I am, and that's okay. Finally, let's talk about mission. Step three of the A model is mission, right? We've accepted it. We've accepted that we cannot change reality. We've accepted those uncomfortable emotions around that. We've integrated those superpowers into our sense of self. We've integrated our values. And now we're going to really inform our values by making a mission out of it, making meaning out of it. As they know something deep down about how displacing parental stress and anxiety to a child is harmful, she knows in her bones, in a deep, authentic way that what she's doing to her daughter sometimes is not okay. It's true she can justify it. And if she wants to, if she's not integrated, if she's not up to mission, she might. She can say things like, I'm just yelling at her to teach her responsibility. She's 11. The chore of setting the table is not all that onerous. I have every right to yell at her for not doing it. I'm yelling at her for her own benefit. But she knows that's not true. She knows she's perpetuating a cycle with this, right? It's totally okay to ask an 11-year-old to set a table. It's okay to feel a little bit annoyed when an 11-year-old doesn't do a chore and you come home to find them on a phone. Yeah, totally okay. Both of those things are okay. But the level of anger, the disproportion in how Esme is reacting, whenever it's disproportionate, this is one of our rules in post-traumatic parenting, whenever our response is disproportionate, we know that that means our wounded inner child is trying to parent our child. That does not work. She knows, she knows deep down she's perpetuating a cycle with this. So one mission she can create is, and this is my interpretation of her story, she can create her own mission, of course. I'm giving my daughter a healthy sense of self and a healthy childhood. Like this is my mission in life. I'm going to make sure to handle my own triggers so my inner child isn't parenting my child. I'm going to manage my triggers before I get enraged with her. If I do lash out, I will take the responsibility of repair. I will make sure to learn about child development and what's normal, what's a normal amount of chores for an 11-year-old, what's a normal reaction if an 11-year-old forgets, and I'm going to stick to that. And of course, in the next chapter, we're going to talk about boundaries and how they interact with entanglement because that's so important to fully understand the story. As you're listening to this, even if you're not the entangled parent, if you fit one of the other profiles, 
think about what your mission in your parenting could be, what your mission in life can be. For me, the end of the A model, the mission is if I can teach other post-traumatic parents how to parent, if I can make post-traumatic parenting this process clear to people, that's my mission in life. That's how I make meaning of the traumas that I experienced. So what's your mission here? What do you need to accept? What counterfactual do you need to accept? What pain do you need to accept? How do you integrate those trauma skills into your fullest sense of self? And what is your mission now that you know this? So let's think about Esme. AIM, acceptance. She has to accept so many things. Number one, I can't fix my family of origin. They will never see me as good enough. They will never give me that validation. They will not change no matter how hard I try to explain it to them. Integration. My trauma strengths have their negative flip sides and are also positives. There are strengths that I use to keep my personal integrity and sense of self in the family I grew up in. These are the strengths that make me a great boss in my business and most importantly, a great mom. I have the right to my boundaries. My anger helps me protect them. And I have to allow anger and sadness in, give them their voice, and use them to reinforce those healthy boundaries. I have the right to my fear. It helps me plan ahead. And I can integrate that voice into my planning. And then we get to mission. I know how important a healthy childhood is. I'm going to provide one for my kids. I will give my daughter and my younger kids permission to be their own authentic selves. I will be the caretaker of my own emotions so my daughter can have a strong sense of self. And again, this is my wording of it. Esme can write her own, but that's how this model would work for an entangled parent. If you're a post-traumatic parent and you found this episode helpful, consider getting involved in other ways. Do you know about our Instagram and Facebook communities? They're linked in the show notes where you can interact with other post-traumatic parents and benefit from the wisdom of the crowd. You have a question about your own post-traumatic parenting journey? Would you like your letter featured on the podcast? Shoot me an email at targetedparenting at gmail.com. It's also in the show notes. As always, I appreciate ratings and reviews, especially on the Apple platform. If Even if you listen on another platform, the Apple ratings help other post-traumatic parents find us and join our community. So please, if you have a moment to share with me, I honor your time and I value that. Please leave a rating and a review. Together, we can do this. Together, we can break cycles. See you next week. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.